Warning. This podcast may contain mature language, so if you're not comfortable with that, earmuffs. I'm Ian Dark, and you're listening to Men in Blazers, sub-optimal radio on the Grantland Network. Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! Warpig. Warpig, everyone. Warpig. Warpig. We're all going to get snowed in here anyway, so... Buckle in. Settle in. Buckle 36 in. hours together with Roger Devo. Yeah, we need... We really could do with 36 hours for what this show is going to be. Uh, with that, we've only got about an hour and 20. We better get cracking, Roger. Well, it's a very special night for us. Not just because we're, we're with you. People have flown in. People have trained in. Flowing. People have bust in. People have come from the crap part of Soho. To, to the crap part of NoHo. <laughs> to commune with us. To celebrate Valentine's Day. Let's hear it for Valentine's come Day. Come on. One of our biggest day. You're all doomed. <laughs> and the other big day in our calendar, or possibly, arguably, we've not discussed this. Oh, we love. Uh, next to Flag Day and Arbor Day, President's Day. Our favourite fluting holiday. Oh, I love it. Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Excellent. Let's hear it for Abraham Lincoln. Come on. Born in February 12th, 1809. He's got the... He, by the way, he's got the Eden Hazard underbeard. He Do does. you notice that? <laughs> That's actually a photo of Andrew Luck. <laughs> Born in 1809, I know, I know, the same year as Brad Friedel. But he, he, he was born in Harding County, Kentucky. Oh, we loved it. Uh, we loved, he it. loved it. He was, he's like a Fellaini-esque midfielder. He is. He said, that I mean, you know him as the man who said, you have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government. Well, I have the most solemn one to protect and defend it. Let's hear it for Abraham Lincoln. Come on. As the photos have shown, he was also, little known, arguably, a huge fan of US soccer. <laughs> GF, great friend of the pod, loved the pod. He was a... Loved it. Long before, long before there was a Sunil Galati, Abraham Lincoln was the Sunil Galati of his day. He didn't watch the ball very well. That's one thing you can say about him. He wasn't watching the ball. But he used to get in there. By the way, that is, I'll just be candid, that is a Photoshop photo of Eden Hazard against Newcastle. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a third goal. We just put it in black and oh, white. No. It's, a, it's Eden Hazard oh. in black and white. And we Where's decided, Samuel Eto'o? Oh. Dave, <laughs> Dave said to me, how can we celebrate, how can we commune with GFOPs on the Valentine's Day, you're all doomed, Abraham Lincoln Day, a great leader, a great visionary, a theatre lover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope tonight ends a little bit better for us than it did for <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Um, and we said, Davo said to me, he said, Rog, there's two requirements. Find us as great a man as Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. But make sure he's alive. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, this man, I've known him for more than 10 years. I'd say, I'd say I love him like a father, but I love him so much more than I love my own father. 
who is regularly as the pod will know, most of the time is in Milton Keynes as I was growing up with his with, other family. With his other family. With his other Davo. So, uh, a man I met more than 11 years ago, what can I say? He uh, is the most successful sports entrepreneur, I believe, in the world. He runs a company, Matram Sport, that pound for pound are the most successful company in the sports business. He's never let me look at his books, but I believe if I looked at those books, they would show a margin of 115%, which I think is impossible, as the chartered accountant he is would tell me. He controls darts, the great royal sport of darts. He controls Leighton Orient Football Club. The mighty Leighton Orient Football Club. They're on a bit of a losing streak right now. They need your support, but he, he runs them. He owns almost every single sport in the UK. He just appeared in front of the House of Lords Select Committee and slayed them and killed and got big laughs throughout the whole night. Uh, since the first time he appeared on our podcast, he's been beloved by you. We've not had anybody, not Billy Bean, not Dirk Nowitzki. Well, Billy Bean was very good. Not the... Dirk Nowitzki was very, Not very the Montenegrin good. ambassador to the United States have... <laughs> Have, uh, have rung for our podcast like this man. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you a man who, had he been born in America, not Dagenham, would surely be the President of the United States of America. <laughs> Mr. Barry Hearn. Good evening, colonies. Barry <laughs> Hearn. Barry Hearn, in case you're listening to this, Barry Hearn is sitting on top of as close as we could get in Manhattan this afternoon. Barry Hearn is atop the Iron Throne. He is. I won't tell you the TV show we use that throne for, <laughs> but if you watch Bravo at 11.30pm on Sunday night, you will see that throne uh, again. So, Barry, this is what we wanted to do. Okay. okay. The, from the time you came on our podcast, you started giving us, we started asking for life lessons. Started asking for, you know, your, the, the, the roots to your success. You've been the most successful person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> Not only in terms of your business, but in terms of your family, mm. in terms of the sheer joy that you take from every moment of your life. And so we want to instruct, to educate, to learn at your feet for us and all of our GFOPs. We want to learn about those, those successes. We want to go through your 10 life lessons, right, Roger? Oh, yep. We want to end this hour as better, better human beings, more productive human beings, yep. better looking, a little bit more hair, yep. more attractive to all human beings. But Barry Hearn, let's hear it for Barry. Barry Hearn is in New York. Okay. The, a, the most excited the city's been since the Muppets took Manhattan. Oh, baby. that was a great movie. And I've got Statler and Waldorf either side. <laughs> I see myself more as an animal, but we'll <laughs> see that later. Yes. Um, so, 
life lesson number one. Let's go into it. We're going to weave your personal story through this. Life lesson number one. Here we go. Alex, you can hit the... Uh, there we go. There's the ten life lessons. Nice title. One, it is better to be born lucky than good looking. Okay, this is really straightforward because... We live in a world where everyone says if you haven't got this type of degree or this type of qualification, you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And basically, I love this word. I have to say, girls, try and get your mouth around this world. It's a really good word. Bollocks. (laughs) It's a good word. Right. Now... Does anybody need a translation of bollocks? It's a wonderful word. Yeah. You know what? It's got so many different meanings to it. In America, it means believe in your future. No, no. (laughs) This is the only word... There's that song in Frozen. It's beautiful. It's the only only word that's got a positive and a negative to it. Yeah. You know, when something happens really bad to you, you go, oh, bollocks. And when something's really, really good, you go, that's the bollocks. It's amazing. It's like when you, when you talk about being born lucky, the principle, we're all great at something. The sadness is that a lot of us don't know in our lifetime what that is. We don't discover an inner strength because we're all such marvellous individuals. Everyone is different, but everyone has got something. Everyone in this room, everyone in this world is a unique person in some way or the other. I mean, Sometimes they, they, they... we don't... Don't fucking interrupt when I'm talking. <laughs> What's he think? What's he think? Sure. You think you think I've flown to fucking Manhattan to listen to you? <laughs> this show sold out. They didn't sell out to listen to you. Okay. So let me just go back on this. Yeah. The principle is. By the way, the 36 hours was not a joke. <laughs> no, I do 36 hours comfortably, without drugs. Can I get a drink? Longer with. The principle is this, is that if you find out what you are good at, it doesn't matter what academic qualifications you've got. I mean, they are useful, but they're not fundamental. The most important thing is to understand that God looks down on us, gives us a fate, gives us a reason for being here, and if we are lucky enough to find out what that reason is, then we will be successful. Can I talk? Can we, we'll take questions. <laughs> I mean, we, we, call this the, we call this the Manute Ball Theory of everybody has a skill, they don't always know what it is, but when it's discovered, it can be incredibly lucrative. But there's something about you, and I'm sitting at a table with the two people I know who are both in the same category. I ask you this, Barry Hearn, thank you so much, good Lord. <laughs> it's what the ravens are for. Have you ever met a more positive person than yourself? Because to me, Michael Davis, the, his nickname... Michael Positive Davis. Have you ever met anyone in your life, and you meet a lot of people now in your realm, have you come across anyone you'd be like, oh, that person's more optimistic and positive than I am? Because I think it's a lot to do with your success. It may be right, but I think I'm too selfish to look at anybody else. (laughs) I just basically think I'm the bollocks. In the good way. In a good way, that is, by the way. And, yeah, I mean, again... We're all such insignificant little flecks in society and humanity, aren't we? There's billions of us out there. We like to think we're more important than we are, but in the cold light of day, we're not really, are we? So, therefore, what little time we've got there, you know, we, we have a duty to ourselves to just be happy. Because life, 
you know, ends in tears. The secret is to enjoy and smile through the remainder. So, Barry, there are many people believe, when they meet British people, they think that we're all born in palaces and went to garden parties and some ate of us, cucumber some of us sandwiches. Some us downstairs. Son of a high court judge. I'm talking about Mrs. Patmore. But you really, in terms of, and here we are in America, the land of opportunity, Barry, mm. you grew up in council estate, like the projects yeah. in East London. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. I, to be honest with you, I love, te- <laughs> I love telling the story because everyone feels sorry for you, you know. I mean, my dad was a bus driver. My mother used to clean houses. She was a char lady. And we lived in abject poverty with no toilet, no bathroom, because that's the houses they built after the war when those German people stopped bombing us. <laughs> you know, it's OK. Per Mertesacker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barry did just tell me a story in the green room that from Dagenham, where he's from, oh, yeah. a German plane was shot down during the war in Dagenham. What yeah. did they do to the pilot? Yeah, we lynched the pilot. We hung him over a lamppost. <laughs> yeah. Fucking one all, mate. Extra time. <laughs> but, you know, but, but, but when you look back on it, and I think this is most important, is... Why I've got such a strong family belief, and the family is to me the most important, much more important than life itself. And I can never remember having an unhappy day. The fact that we don't, I mean, we live within the means that we have. If you earn $100 a week, you spend $100 a week. If you earn a million dollars a week, I understand you spend a million dollars a week. You know? So, not having any money, not having any social, you know, nothing. I mean, nothing was actually, it didn't affect you as a child, does it? Because you grow up in the environment and you get used to the environment. And I can't remember a childhood. I mean, in fact, my father was always ill and died very young, but, you know, which was a different, you know, bad day for him, but... Uh, <laughs> actually, to be fair... At least he wasn't a German I, pilot. No, no, no. <laughs> he would have never made 44 if he'd been a German pilot. And it was a fucking goal, by the way. It was clearly over the line. I don't <laughs> care what they say. We got our revenge in a sort of soccer way. Yeah. But I don't think I can remember a bad day. All I remember was this desire, which was a burning desire, to make money. I wanted, from a very early age, to be rich. And so how did you do that? How did you get lucky? I developed a work ethic. I've got two things. I'm not the brightest person out there. You know, if you want to talk Greek mythology... Have a chat with someone else. Boris Johnson. <laughs> you know, but what I did desire, I, without being a great student, because I wasn't, I didn't go to university or anything like that, but I developed a focus and a work ethic, and those two things were the most important thing in my life. My focus was, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be poor. I don't like the idea of it. So I started my first business when I was 12 years old, and interestingly enough, my second business, my first business was stripping tomato plants. You know, you have to take the, the leaves off them so the sun gets through. That's tomatoes yeah. in American. Yeah. Tomatoes. <laughs> my second business was my best business for, for years and years. I was driving my bicycle just around the corner of my, where, my estate where I live, which was a you know, toughish place. And I found what we used to call in those days a tit book. Right? <laughs> this was the old days. And it was pictures of naked women. But you never saw everything, you just saw the tits. A tit book. A tit book. So... In America, that's an artily shot photographic coffee table (laughs) portrait. 
I like found, Robert Meeplethorpe. I found this magazine, and once I'd, you know, been to the lavatory a few times just to go through some of the pages, <laughs> those pages that weren't sticking together, <laughs> I took to school and I showed my mates. And in the middle was four colour pages, and the rest was black and white pictures. And I was, we look at it like 13 year olds do. Cool, she's lovely. Cool, blimey. You know, I've been there. Of course, we haven't, but we can pretend. <laughs> Just a general bomb, it's and one of, a conversation. And one of my schoolmates said, can I buy the colour picture in the middle? I'll give you sixpence, which was no money at all, but sixpence today, in those days, was quite a lot of money. Two bags of sweets. And I thought, yeah, tore him off a page, gave it to him. And another kid said, I'll buy the other page for sixpence. And then some kid said, how much are the black and white pages? I said, threepence. <laughs> and I sold him. And within about... Five minutes, I sold the whole book. And I had a few shillings, which to me was a fortune. And I thought to myself, there's a business here. In America, so, this is called hustling. This was, in biblical terms, it was actually more like Lazarus going down the road. <laughs> I saw the fucking light. <laughs> so the next thing, I had a few shillings, and I found these two worldly blokes... In my school, worldly, because I'd never come off the estate. I weren't allowed to go out because my mum told me there was bad people there, so I didn't go. I found two worldly blokes. I gave them five or six shillings, and they went to London. I'd never been to London, central London. They went to London where you could buy some more of these books. And within a month, I had 12 salesmen. I had two blokes in charge of going to buy the books. I ran the whole school at threepence and sixpence a picture, and I was making a fortune. <laughs> now, here's the sad story. Tip books, it's the future. <laughs> <laughs> Since 1972. Yeah. Actually, no, actually no, earlier. This was 1958. Yep. No, 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 sorry, 1961. So, storage was my big problem. <laughs> Obviously, security risks in this neighbourhood were strong. <laughs> so I found Chunky Ryan. Oh, Chunky, Chunky Ryan. Let's hear it for Chunky Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Chunky Ryan. Tell us about Chunky Ryan. Right. Chunky Ryan. I was always a bad person when I was younger. I know it's difficult to believe now because you see this rather nice guy in a suit. Trust me. I'm not armed, but I'm dangerous. <laughs> Chunky Ryan was the only bloke at school who could stand up to me. He was massive. So I gave Chunky the job of warehouse storage. And all the tip books were in his desk. And no one would go near Chunky's desk. <laughs> this was all going swimmingly well for about three months. And then one day, and it had to be in religious instruction lesson, <laughs> Mr Pemberton was calling out the names for you to bring your homework to him. And he came to the name of Chunky Ryan. And Chunky, unfortunately, was at the dentist. And the magic words Mr. Pemberton said to the horror of those in assembly and the millions watching around the world. He said, don't worry, it's probably in his desk. And the game was up. Chunky Ryan, the school bully, cracked like a grass and ratted on everybody. And the next morning assembly, 14 names were read out, my sales force, my buying force, 
I was obviously in charge of finance. And we were read out to go to the headmaster's class. And the headmaster's office, I beg your pardon. The headmaster said, you know what you're here for? And everyone went, yes, sir. And he said, right, trousers down. Now, these days, it cost a fortune to West End for this, but in those days, it was a punishment. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's another story I see. It's, it's obviously hit a nerve. <laughs> Fucking hit a nerve with me as well. So we're all lined up, one by one, six wallops with the cane on the bare buttock. Yeah. I was the last in the queue. And each time the headmaster asked the same question, have you got anything to say? And everyone went, I'm ever so sorry. Good enough, boy. Wallop, wallop. Got anything to say? I'll never do it again. Wallop, wallop, wallop. Came to me. You got anything to say? Nothing, but it's a shame I'm being punished twice for the same offence. Why? I haven't hit you yet. No, but I told my dad last night, I knew I was going to get you give me a terrible beating. Fair enough, hun. You've suffered enough. Off you go. <laughs> Can I just say, I know some of you will want a nice postscript on the story, and David and I were the two people who were charged with getting more tip books from the West End. <laughs> and we both managed to make that task play through up forward into a relatively moderately suboptimal podcast in North America. So we survived. I want to move through these life lessons because after that story, the formative, the formative touchstone, the rosebud story yeah. of Barry Hearn, if you will. Let's go to life lesson number two and Which see if it's it, appropriate. It's appropriate. Tell the truth. It is easier than telling lies. Which Even that, though yeah. you did just, I'm sure, tell a lie to your headmaster yeah. and that got you out of punishment. And he's in the audience here tonight. Mr. Pemberton. <laughs> and we've brought him here. Yeah. Now, the secret about this, of course, is, is this something you acquire as you get older. When I'm young, I told lies all the time. In fact... I only stopped telling lies about 1982. <laughs> I remember the day because I made a shed load of money on a deal and I thought, I can afford to tell the truth. <laughs> Quite recently, I've got this big dispute going on with the Olympic Stadium. As I said to the wife the other day, everyone hates me. It's not unusual. Cameron, Boris Johnson... I said, I've completely fucked the knighthood. Well, that's the Prime Minister, the Mayor of London. Yeah. You're yeah. at war with the Premier League, yeah. West Ham United, yeah. Yeah. Sam Allardyce. Yeah. 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 The only people who like you are French. No. <laughs> no one likes me. Who would like me? I wouldn't have me as a friend. That's why I'm here. Because I feel, I feel the love in this room. I had a meeting with Boris Johnson a little while ago, and we talked about the Olympic Stadium. And Boris Johnson's a very, very, very nice man, academically brilliant. As we said earlier, absolute buffoon. <laughs> and we're sitting there talking about the Olympic Stadium, and he's going, well, Barry, no, it's, it's really out of my control. Right? <laughs> and I'd really love to help you, but, you know, you just haven't got any money, and basically that's what we're after. We call it the Olympic legacy. <laughs> And I said, Boris, you've got two problems with me. Only two. Only two. I'm old and I'm very, very rich. <laughs> I said, that means I tell the truth all the time. And you, my friend, I wouldn't let run a news store, let alone London. <laughs> he said, well, why is that? I said, because you're a buffoon. <laughs> At that moment, my knighthood went out the fucking window. <laughs> We got Serene Darker Knighthood. Yeah, we, we can did. work on it for you, Barry. We can work on it. Let, let, me, let me ask you one question. I had an English teacher around the time you were being 
not spanked by yours up in Liverpool, Mr. Stop, English teacher, horrible man. Horrible man. His death is one of the happiest days in my life. <laughs> Open it, all available it, oxygen inlet valves. The Terry used to come into the classroom, he'd go, Open all available oxygen inlet valves. It smells like a Turkish brothel in here, lads. <laughs> the World War I was still going on inside of Mr. Stott's head. And he had a phrase, Barry, I won't run past you when I saw this law. He used to always say, Lads, bullshit baffles brains. Bullshit baffles brains. It's a very English phrase. Yep. Is it true, Barry? Yeah, I mean, I think it is true. If you're a great salesman, I mean, obviously, in the world of boxing, for example, you know, have you ever met Don King? You know, I mean, I've done business with Don, and I don't think he knows the day of the week. <laughs> but when he starts talking, you actually believe him. He's, almost, he's got a 20-minute cycle. For 20 minutes, he can hypnotise you. A little while ago, we came, when Don was in his ascendancy as the number one promoter, I brought the heads of one of the big TV stations out to meet him and to talk about doing a boxing deal with Don King. And I warned them both. This man wants, you know, he's been my partner on a lot of shows and I don't think I've ever made any money. He wants 101 cents out of every dollar. <laughs> I said, but be careful because this guy can talk. I said, and he will hypnotise you. No, rubbish, we're experienced TV executives. I said, so we met Don in this waffle house in New York for breakfast. <laughs> You've never seen anyone eat so disgustingly as this man. You know, eggs, bacon, beans, pancake, treacle, and then it a lot. So he's talking America's to these amazing. guys about... I said to them, whatever you do, don't agree to anything. Just nod... Go away and think about it, and then you can make a decision. Within ten minutes, he'd completely hypnotised the head of ITV. <laughs> and he suddenly stood up in this waffle house, and he suddenly started shouting, I can see it all! I can see it all! ITV are going to take over the world of boxing, and it will be King Bob Burroughs, head of sport, and his loyal consort, Prince Trevor East, assistant head of sport, you are going to create a monster the likes of which have never been seen on British television. You're going to dominate the airwaves. We are going to take over the world. And these guys are eyes glazed. And he put a contract in front of them and they fucking signed it. <laughs> so bullshit can baffle brains. Yeah, but back to your life lesson, Barry. Telling the truth easier than telling lies. One thing I find difficult to do, I find it difficult... Some maybe not old enough yet, maybe not rich enough yet. I find it difficult to fire people. No, I'm sure you're no, good at it. No, I'm great. I can, <laughs> I can do better than fire people if you really want. I mean, we, <laughs> I mean, we can have a little chat in the car park if you really want. It won't be me, but it'll be some of the people I know. The great thing about it is, my questions. as you get older, you've got to tell the truth as you get older, because you can't remember the lies. The truth comes naturally. So it's easier to tell the truth. And you know that wonderful independence? You know the great thing about making a few quid, making a few dollars? You're independent. You can be yourself. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to squirm. You don't have to. It's just a few years ago, some of, some of these rather brash American people came to see me. Some of them. From the young dot-com market. And they wanted to buy my company. And you know what? I was thinking about selling it. You know, because they offered me more money than I'd ever seen in my whole life. Fortunes, when the dot-com boom was going crazy. And I talked to my wife about it, who's a much nicer person than me, by the way. 
And she said, you got to work for them. I said, yeah, for five years. It's like a buyout. Yeah. But it was a lot of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And she said to me, do you like them? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, you don't need the money. Why are you taking their money? And I thought, out of the mouths of children. And we had this meeting, these two young Americans come in, they were banging the table, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, we're going to... And I'm like, I said, boys, can I just say something? Now, they'd finished due diligence and everything, they'd spent a lot of money. I said, we're not doing the deal. And they went, what do you mean we're not doing the deal? We've agreed the deal. I said, we haven't signed anything and we're not doing the deal. And they said, why aren't we doing the deal? I said, because I don't like you. (laughs) And these guys said, what's that got to do with the deal? I said, exactly my point. It's a different mentality. Life's about living, about enjoying yourself, about feeling relaxed, about being yourself. And if people don't like it, fuck them. <laughs> I've got to tell you, you're, there, there, was a, there was an article that came out last week by an Australian behaviourologist who's not in the audience. He clicked... <laughs> He claimed more British people died than other nationalities on the Titanic because they politely queued while the ship was going down. <laughs> and Americans had the highest probability of survival because most of them were in first class near the boats and, quote, elbowed their way to the front. Now, they're all in uh, high-tech Silicon Valley now. <laughs> all their DNA, their progeny is. But it brings us to life lesson number four, which I think ultimately in these negotiations... Number three. Three. I was not joking about 36 hours. We talked about this one briefly. Sheer work ethic can make you look like a genius. This is so underestimated. What have we all got in common with every other human being? The answer? There's the same amount of hours in every day. 24. So now when you talk about... Sticking arms. Number of arms. <laughs> no, no, no. I thought two arms. But of course, not every human has two arms. No, if they do a deal with me, they the don't. Same number of hours. The, what, what we're talking about here is the ability to focus and achieve your goals. Yeah. Let's be serious. We all would like to be successful, but so many of us pay lip service to the essence of being successful that we don't make the sacrifices that are necessary to be successful. And then we moan that we're not successful. Sheer work ethic makes you a genius. Because there are 24 hours in the day, and your opposition, your competitors, will not work 24 hours a day. They will not think about wives and children and social life. If you have got the focus to be a success, and you're prepared to put in more than your opposition, you will win. If you're talking about a recession, do you know how you get out of a recession? It's easy. Start an hour early, finish an hour later. You will add 8% minimum to your gross national product. It's not rocket science. It's called hard work. And at the end of the day, if you are a bit slower than the guy that went to Harvard, work twice as hard. If you're related to a high court judge, (laughs) try and get good time off for good behaviour. Well, what's more important, intelligence or confidence? Confidence. Every single solitary time. There's a lot of intelligence people out there. Who's confident here? Let's hear it for confidence. (laughs) Intelligence! If you don't... If you don't believe in yourself 
Outside of this now, because we're having a lovely jovial night, interspersed will be, will be the odd serious remark. If you don't believe in yourself, how can you possibly expect other people to believe in you? If that doesn't come across in your personality, when someone turns around and says, I don't much like him, but fuck me, he's real. <laughs> that's what you're trying to put across. And if that's coupled with a work ethic where people know that you will deliver. Not bullshit. Bullshit doesn't draffle. Bullshit can be better than brains in the early stages of negotiation. It gets you this but when far. it comes to delivery, you have to be the you have to be of the confidence to know that what you're saying you can live to and you live and die on that performance. And this is a very serious matter because there's a lot of people talk a great talk, but my friends, they don't walk the fucking walk. Quick sidebar. Quick sidebar. Leighton Orient have lost three games on the trot. Yeah. <laughs> you are at their helm. Yeah. I can't believe they're not Bayern Munich at this point. What are your challenges for oh. Leighton Orient for them winning League One this year and going up to the championship? Okay. Let me just tell you the story. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to go and watch a football match. I'm living in the poorest part of East London. My mum and dad would not let me go to watch Tottenham, Arsenal or West Ham because they were big teams. But she let me go to Leighton Orient because it was a small family-friendly club. I was there when I was 11. Do you know how much pleasure you get when you turn your lights out and go to sleep knowing that you owned a club that you supported as an 11-year-old boy? This is something very, very special to me. We are having a great season, despite three losses. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. <laughs> i got a fucking alcoholic on my left. <laughs> what chance? What's it like when you're pissed, Rog? Oh, I'd win the world championship of darts. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So... The secret with Lake Norrin is that we have a role, and this is, the, this is the issue for the MLS as well. We have a role within the community. And MLS. We are MLS. <laughs> One of them. Whilst we are operating, we reach 100,000 kids a year through our community schemes. We win Community Club of the Year nearly every year. It's something we are passionate about because we are very unlikely to win the Champions League, the FA Cup and the Premiership. But what we can do is we make a contribution at the same time as having fun. So it's a good balance. We're there for fun, but we actually do some good. All of a sudden, no, 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 no applause for that because that can come at the end after this brilliant speech. <laughs> All of a sudden, I bring this great manager in, Russell Slade. Russell, Russell, Russell Slade. He's got no hair, but we don't care. <laughs> He's created with a minuscule budget. My budget this year for players' wages is around $2.5 million for the entire squad. I've got a very small squad. It's just me. <laughs> Last month, we played Wolverhampton Wanderers at Wolves with 30,000 people there. We drew 1-1. We could have won it, but we didn't. But we was quite happy with the draw. Their budget is $35 million. We're in the same league. And the reason is because we have heart and balls, the two most important aspects of any man's life. We've created a, the most important ingredient, and if you listen to Mr. Bean and all his statistics, we've created a team that is a team. 
not a group of talented individuals. We're not the best footballers in the world. Everyone plays for the team. I stuck a sign up, as you, some of you may know, in the dressing room at the beginning of the season and said, this is a geography lesson. And I put a map on the wall. That's Europe, that's Atlantic Ocean, and that's North America. I've drawn 75 little spots between London and Las Vegas. I said, you get me in the fucking playoffs, or I shall be really upset with all of you. But if you get me in the playoffs, I'll take you all to Vegas for a major piss-up. <laughs> we are now plotting our little plastic plane, and we're over mid-America, and we need, we've set our targets this year to make the playoffs, which would be an enormous achievement with the facilities and the amount of money we spend. We need five wins out of 16 games. We're going to make the playoffs. We'd like to make automatic. That might be tough because we're up against a lot of big teams. But when life's about spirit. Life's about heart. Life's about giving. You know, winning and losing is not just a conversation. It's your whole fucking life. It's about what do we do with ourselves? Do we take second best? We'll probably have to sell for second best, but we won't settle for it. We'll try to be the best we can be every single hour that God puts on this table. And I've got a team this year that is exactly like that. We're getting beat at the moment. We lost our goalkeeper. Sad. We've got him back again for Saturday. Don't worry. We will have fun. And if we fail, we will fail with a smile on our face knowing that we could not have given more. That's all I ask for any member of my team. Come on, Leighton Orient. Come on! And thanks to Men and Blazers, we know we're there. Lesson four. Let's have it up. Let's have it up. It's up. Oh, what is it? Pressure is only felt by those who fail. Do you know, I hate this word pressure. It's the biggest excuse I have ever heard in my life. Oh, I just couldn't cope with the pressure. Let me get this right. You're in a situation where you're one of the privileged few that's getting a huge amount of relatively huge amount of money for entertaining people and for playing something or working in an environment that you love. And yet you need an excuse. I can't stand whingers. I hate whingers. We all get beat. Pressure is an excuse. Pressure is nerves. Nerves is something we all get every day of our life because it's excitement. Nerves have to be excitement. It's a positive, not a negative. Sometimes things don't work out. That's life. You deal with it and you move on. But these people that say they couldn't cope with the pressure or the pressure got to me, nah, too Bob. Barry. So how do you deal with those people? What do you do when people come to you, your athletes who you manage or your employees who... I tell them to get another job. I tell them to get another job. I'm honest with them. I have kids, I have kids on the snooker circuit that I own. I have the world darts, obviously. I own all the world dart circuits. And sometimes people say to me, oh, I cracked up under the pressure. I say, son, get another job. One... You might not be enjoying your life if you can't cope with it. I don't want to be responsible for your mental state. <laughs> Two, you're obviously fucking useless because you got beat. <laughs> Three, I really don't want you in my office because you're depressing, so leave. <laughs> End of story. Barry, I, I don't like to bring up dark moments in your life, but you, <sighs> had, you had a heart attack in 2001. It wasn't a dark moment. It was one of the best days of my life. What, what, <laughs> what, it was what, wonderful. What, Let me tell you the story. I'll tell you the story. What, uh, we wonder what life lessons you've okay, I can't. I'll tell you a story. Right. <laughs> Four generations of Hearns. No one's got past 44. No male has got past 44 years old. 
I set my target, early doors, try and make 45 so you're the winner. Right? <laughs> and so what I did was, I started, you know, I mean, I smoke, I drink, I do, I do everything bad. I compensate by killing myself in the gym. So I ran marathons all around the world. I did New York twice, I done London four times, Brazil, Hong Kong. I never won one of them. <laughs> but, you know, I had the best time of three tried. hours. I tried my nuts off. Someone like Forrest Gump, someone, I said, how do you run? Someone said, Forrest Gump. I said, what's Forrest Gump? He said, you just say run. So you run. I can understand simple instructions. <laughs> so, you know, so I ran 3.21, which is not a bad time for a marathon for an old fat fart. You know, so anyway, I go past 44. I start feeling a few chest pains, you know. And you start, I'm on the running machine. I used to do three hours on a running machine. I'm a fucking legend. What do you expect? <laughs> so, anyway, I start, getting, I start getting off after 12 minutes with a chest pain, and you start convincing yourself, oh, I've got to stop eating those bananas. It's indigestion. Anyway, it's great. This is a great story. I love telling the story because it's so true, as is every single story. So if you don't believe me, you can fuck off now. <laughs> right? So, five o'clock in the morning... Bang. Oh, boys. Anyone here had a heart attack? Fucking great. <laughs> I saw my father at five. It's not nice. So, you can't breathe. You feel as if someone's standing on your chest. You know, it's not a nice feeling. But, you know, because of my lifestyle, because of my family background, in a way, I was actually ready for it. I was expecting it for years because I was brought up in that environment. So, I tapped my wife. She's a lovely girl. You'd love my wife. I hope you do, because someone's got to. Anyway. Well, what's, her, what's her name, Barry? Her name is Susan. I've been married 44 Let's years. Let's for Susan. She's the most... She is, she is the mafia mother of mafia mothers. All my family, like, we're, we're blokes, aren't we? We're tough guys. We, we, you know, we make the rules. Do we, hell? This woman runs my whole family like a rock, and no one disagrees with her. We're all scared stiff of her. My son's six foot five. You know, he can still do ten rounds. He's a decent, decent kid. No one disagrees with mum. No one. So anyway, five o'clock in the morning, I'm having a heart attack. I know it's a heart attack. I don't feel good. I tap her on the shoulder, and I'm trying to stay calm, because the one thing I can't stand is people panicking. There's no point in panic. What does a panic do? It doesn't achieve anything. So I'm quite calm. I'm dying, but I'm calm. <laughs> I tap her on the shoulder and I say, she wakes up, well, you know, well, no, not put that out of your mind, girl. You know. <laughs> I'm having a fucking heart attack here. <laughs> this is a gospel true story. I said to her, don't panic. But I'm having a heart attack. Get me an ambulance. Now, my wife is a very strange woman. She's very private. She doesn't like using the phone. She won't phone anybody. So I said, get me an ambulance. She said, are you sure? I said, I am absolutely positive. I'm trying to stay calm myself. Just get me an ambulance. She said, why don't we leave it 10 minutes and see how you are? <laughs> This is gospel true. I said, look, darling, don't fuck about. Get me a fucking ambulance. She said, well, I can't dial 999, which is the emergency nine in England. I said, why not? She said, that's only for emergencies. <laughs> she went downstairs and got me a glass of milk. 
It's about the worst thing you could give to anyone having a heart attack. Anyway, it was great because they rushed me off and everyone made a everyone made a fuss about me. I, I love it. I love people making a fuss of me because no one makes a fuss of me. I'm untouchable. How can you make a fuss of someone like me? So I'm in intensive care. And all of a sudden, Chris Eubank walks in. You know, the boxer from England, he was very, very famous. And he started reciting Rudyard Kipling to me. I've got the mask on, oxygen. Then what, Steve Davis come in. It was something about, I don't know, it was a Rudyard Kipling poem. But I wasn't really in the mood to listen to it's Rudyard probably, Kipling yeah, at the time. It's, it's probably so Chris Gunga Eubank then, comes yeah. in. He was, what, then, he was what, what, world, world super middleweight champion for 19 fights. Then Steve Davis comes Steve in. Steve Davis comes in. champion. Gingy. Let's was... hear for Gingies! <laughs> no, 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 let's the... hear for Gingies! <laughs> okay. The best one was, this is an, there was a load of Irish nurses, and that Flatley bloke, you know? What, the river dancer, yeah. Michael Flatley? He phoned up to see where I was. They were so impressed that I knew Michael Flatley. <laughs> Did they but all then... know that they were in your will or something? <laughs> no, but then it got better. See, I'm in a national health hospital. That to transfer me to a proper hospital. And there I had to have the operation to just repair the main artery. I won't bore you with it. But it was great. Again, I was the centre of attraction. And in case you haven't noticed it, I am not a shy and modest type of person. <laughs> so I have this operation and it's lovely. I meet the doctor who's on standby in case something goes wrong. He introduces himself as, I'm the doctor you don't want to see. I thought, fair enough. Who is it? Dr. Hook. But then the great line. So you go down and they keep you awake during this operation. So I'm being operated on and I can see my... I've got a big screen in front of me with my heart going bong. Massive fucking heart as well. <laughs> Small willy, but a fucking massive heart. <laughs> <laughs> so... This nurse is going up through my groin while I'm awake to fit all these things, stents and stuff, you know? And you know, they put that stuff in you. What do they call that stuff? They begins with an M, doesn't it? One of those uh, painkiller things. Morphine. I was going to say I tell you what, I've never, I've never even smoked a funny cigarette. I've never had any drugs in my life. I love that morphine. <laughs> I was feeling great. I was going to come out of a Frank Sinatra song. Okay. Anyway, it was a great experience. I loved every second of it, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I loved it myself because it made me focus. It made me realise the vulnerability of all of us, and no matter all the bullshit aside, we're not, we, don't, we have no significance, really, do we? Only in our own mind. OK, back to Barry Hearn's Life Lessons, part one. We've got a number five. You will run a better business and a better life if you think poor. Yeah. Explain that. Right. Well, I've always been poor. Even today, I consider myself working class and poor. But, of course, I'm not. <laughs> but my mental attitude is... My mental attitude is I want value. I want value in life. And, you know, value, and obviously this changes, I'm generalising, it changes for everybody. Certain things that you, you know, you might have extravagance. But when it gets down to running a business and running a proper life, it's better if you don't take yourself too seriously. It's better if you just realise that you want value, even though you could be extravagant. And I'll give you a great example. I manage a guy called Carl Froch. Carl Froch is the world super middleweight champion. This is the meanest motherfucker I've ever met in my life. 
He earns millions and millions of pounds fighting. He lives on 500 pounds, which is, what, 700, 800 dollars a week. And he will not spend more than 500 pounds a week. On, on, on his tip books? No, the Cobra. He went out the other day, in my office, we had Carl Frotch, multi-millionaire earner at the moment. In fact, today, today, by now, I have signed the Frotch Groves rematch, which will be the biggest fight ever staged in England. I'm looking at 60, 65,000 people, football ground. It's going to be a massive, massive fight. This guy was in my office a few months ago with a trainer, nice guy, very nice guy. Nice to see him out and about again. Done a few years away, but makes a great boxing trainer. With another champion, Darren Barker, who's just retired. With a kid that's just turned pro, who's got his arse hanging out of his trousers because he's got no money. And Cole Frotch, the multi-millionaire. They go out for a pizza. The bill comes to £32. Cole Frotch says, right, we'll all put a tenner in. Right? But he can't do his job of getting it in the face every day of the week if he looks at his bank balance. I tried to get Marvin Hagler to come out of retirement to fight Chris Eubank years ago. And he was very sensible. He said, Barry, I haven't got a fortune left. I've got about $8 million in the bank. He said, but it's really tough to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do your road work with $8 million in the bank. You think poor. If I didn't think poor, I wouldn't be working 16-hour days. I just wouldn't be able to do it. If I sat back quietly and said, Fuck me, Barry. You've bang at it off. You're worth zillions. How would I get up and go and do a deal? I wouldn't be able to do a deal, would I? I've got to remove that from myself, and I've got to think poor, get value, push the build, push the boundaries. The day I get complacent, complacency is the biggest killer in any business of any rule. Forget over-trading, forget borrowing too much money, forget trading at a loss. Complacency kills more business than anything. There's always better, there's always more. And it's not about the money. Business is like a sport. We play to win. We play by the rules most of the time. We train hard. We put in a lot of thought and a lot of energy into it. But we play it like a game of football. You play to win. So you play to your strengths. You try and avoid your weaknesses. You eliminate the opposition by tactical manoeuvre. That's a nice way of putting it. And you play to win. So you've got to think poor. That makes you successful. The way you describe Cole Frosch's job, that he gets paid a fortune to get hit in the face, it's the way David describes what I do. Yeah. <laughs> And with that, let's move on to... Number six. Number six. Are unusual you... things happen every day of your life. It's how you deal with them that makes you unusual. This is the same sort of thing as we say, if you look at yourself, as I say, everybody is unique. Everybody in this room, everybody in this world is totally unique. Things will happen to you because I'm a, a fatalistic type of person. I believe that pretty well everything is preordained. I think that we are what we are, and I won't go into a big... I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... Are you religious? I'm 80% religious. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in... I'm 20% just in case it might be Jewish. So I had the... Oh, <laughs> so... Let's hear it for Jewish. OK, back to Barry. I, I only got circumcised in case they were right. <laughs> but, you know, but let's be honest. The Jews are a great race. They're a nation of optimists. Who else would cut off 20% before they know how big it's going to be? <laughs> you know, 
I always look at those pictures of those guys and think, maybe I should have left that extra bit on. <laughs> anyway. Just talking about our hair, by the yeah. way. In your life, whether it's business, whether it's sport, whether it's just your personal life, unusual things happen every day. And you ask yourself, I wonder why that happened. In my life, things have happened. I mean, we, we have a phrase in London called, if you're a face. If you're a face, you're lucky, right? I'm a massive face. And I, and I don't know why God chose me as a massive face, but I give him the credit for it. It's why I believe in God. By face, you mean circumcised penis? Yeah. Well, you keep having as many facelifts as you. Your penis will be <laughs> under your fucking chin. In, 19, in 1975... <laughs> oh, my biographer, Barry Hearn. <laughs> Uh, most people thought it was a tie. Uh, <laughs> oh, a tie with hair on. Oh, Made by the General Knot Company, by the way. <laughs> Massachusetts finest. As you go through your life, you look back on things, and, and I'm at that lovely age at the moment. I'm 66 next year, uh, or this year. I'm 66 in June. And, you know, you, you get a bit philosoph philosoph philosophical. You look back on things, and you wonder why things happen. And it's the unusual things, you know... I'm running a snooker hall company in 1975 and this tall skinny ginger kid walks in and I'm sitting in my office, quite happy with my life, making a good living, having a, having a little bit of fun, not massive, but you know, what I could get away with, running a few other little interesting businesses around the world and uh, the guy upstairs, the manager of the billiard hall, which is like a pool hall, phones me up and says, you should come up and have a look. He said, there's a kid up here who looks really good. And I thought, well... Oh. It's unusual. I walk up there and I met Steve Davis. And Steve Davis won the World Snooker Championship six years running, changed the game. He's my best friend for 36 years. And my life wouldn't be the same without meeting him. And then you look at other things, you think different things happen at a period. They asked me to be the chairman of the Professional Darts Corporation 12 years ago. I don't do chairmans. I do ownership. I don't like committees. I don't like shareholders. I don't like anyone who may have an opinion that's contrary to my own. It was Chairman Mao's big mistake. Yeah, no. <laughs> he was so flexible. <laughs> <laughs> anyone starts that fucking journey, I mean, you've got to be silly. You know, get a cab. <laughs> oh, deep political stories going here. It's... It, I've completely lost my plot now. Where are we going with that? You don't so like I don't, don't, like, I don't like committees. I like to make my own. in charge. Yeah. Professional Darts Corporation chairman. Okay, so they, they want me to be the chairman. I go to the World Darts Championship, which is in a little CD, 650-seater. I want to say it was a tatty nightclub, but there was more chewing gum on the floor than carpet. <laughs> but you know what I saw in there? I saw me. See, when I do events... There's no rocket science to it. I do events that I want to go to. So I judge myself to be the people's promoter, the working class man. So therefore, all my events are to appeal to me on the gamble that that will automatically appeal to the proletariat. So I go into this World Darts Championships. I see people drinking pints of lager. I see people smoking. I see people having a bet. I see people having fun. And I felt at home. So I said, rather than me be your chairman, I'll just buy it all 
and let's see if we can make this into a proper business. For those of you who don't know what's happened with darts, the biggest exploding sport in the world at the moment, someone, someone laughs and they don't know what the fuck they're laughing at. I've got 11,000 people in at Leeds for Premier League darts, watching four fat guys throw darts. I've got 100,000 people going to Premier League, 50,000 people. The biggest sport for the 18 to 30 year olds in Europe is professional darts. Also, this may appeal to some of you, I have an average alcoholic intake of 11 pints per person per day. For you, that's called is that breakfast. Is that the players or the, or the fans? We, it's so funny because obviously the players come out of a pub atmosphere, so they drink, obviously, but we don't allow them to drink on stage. Anymore. Anymore. <laughs> if you saw what went behind in the green room, it's unbelievable how much these blokes can drink and still stand up. But they, it's become working man's golf. You see, this thing in society where we are all pigeonholed into certain areas depending on our... It's like the Indian caste system, isn't it? You know, working class, middle class, upper class. We've developed a sport of darts that is totally classless now. So, yes, the bloke in the factory wants to go, but also, so does Prince Harry. Every single merchant banker of every money market man, their number one ticket is darts. And it's just created an atmosphere. You'll be seeing it on Fox Sports because yeah. they just bought the World Championships and the Premier League. So you can watch it on there. Fox it's Fox unbelievable Fox. to watch. I mean, Bruce Mandel, I, I, we're going to crack it in America. I, I, anyway. I, I just say very quickly about the Indian caste system. There's a caste called the Dimmy, the Untouchable, and I think Barry is in it. I'd say there's an, there's an amazing scene in it where Barry talks about uh, he's, going, he's cracking a business deal. And he's about to do a deal in this amazing documentary that I hope we can bring to America, Dave. Yeah, people's promoter. But he says, he says to someone who wants to do a business deal to him, he says, um, doing a business deal with me is like going to the dentist. You grab your dentist testicles before you sit in the chair and say, we're not going to hurt each other, are we? <laughs> Which is not like how I go to my dentist. But lesson seven, lesson seven, life ends in tears. So well, that's just going back to life. what we've been talking about. You know, me, oh, it's very quick because we just know, we know who we are. We know that one day we're not going to be here. People around us, people we love will disappear. So life ends in tears. But our obligation is to make sure we enjoy every single second while we're here and make those people around us enjoy it as well. Number eight, your life does not change by sitting on the sofa. Well, this again, you know, so many people say, oh, I had this great idea. I get thousands of ideas every week from wannabe entrepreneurs. They're all fucking useless. <laughs> and, you know, it's like having a child. The geezer's had an idea. He thinks someone should send him a cheque for a million dollars same day. A Pitchberry competitive origami. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to know. No, no. We had a tear-up over it, though, didn't we? <laughs> no, I'm afraid sitting around, doing nothing, and then making excuses and whinging about not having a luck or not having chances always doesn't sit well with me. Because we are. Why I feel such affinity to America is I feel that we are actually the land of opportunity. I think although there's a lot of things fucked up in our system, we've got a lot of political problems, we've got wankers running the country. But other than that, we're you, still you basically England? everywhere. Well, you listen, you've got the same problem, haven't you? You've got politicians that most of them haven't had a job before. You know, <laughs> so how can you take them seriously? But at the end of the day, we are still a great, great country for giving people the opportunity. And we should grasp that opportunity. And you don't do it sitting on a sofa. Yeah.
the English-speaking peoples. Come on, English-speaking peoples. So, We're all playing, uh, Manawas. <laughs> Number nine, avoid being a secret. If you are good, then admit it. And if you are great, then shout it from the rooftops, Barry Hearn. Listen, so we've all... If we, I guess it comes back to this point. Do you really, really, really believe in yourself? Do you really feel you've got something to add? Don't, don't be hard on yourself, Roger. But you're right. <laughs> what we're saying here is, you know, so many people have got so much more to give, but they keep it inside them. They've got to share it. They, if they've got something they feel passionate about, you know, and I feel passionate for everything I do, or we have, a, we have a phrase at Matchroom Sport, no passion, no point. If we don't love a sport we do, we don't do it. It doesn't matter about the money. So I don't like tennis. Nothing wrong with tennis. Great athletes. I just don't like it. My wife plays tennis. I fucking hate tennis. I don't like motorsport. I don't like to see cigarette packs doing 200 miles an hour. It just does nothing for me. I find it fucking boring. And I don't own it either. So it's a kiss of death. If there's no passion, there's no point. So if you've got passion, if you really think you're good at something, don't wait for someone to identify you because they maybe never will. Market yourself in the same way as you've marketed your product. Don't be a secret. Tell everyone. And you know what? Even if you're wrong, go out in flying colours. Go out with all bombs on board. Fuck the system. Fuck the people. Just tell them what you want to hear. Barry, just quickly, how did you raise such successful children? Your son, Eddie, runs your boxing business. He's amazing. Your daughter, great producer. Works you know what? From sport. My kids are so lovely, I'm sure. We've all got, you know, those who have got kids, we all love our kids. It's natural. And we're always worried about what they're going to turn out like, aren't we? Are they going to be druggies? I mean, what I was worried about was I come from absolutely nothing. And I, my kids, you know, obviously they've come into a right touch, haven't they? They've had a right touch. <laughs> you know. And I was wondering, yeah, what they're going to turn out to. When my son was 16 years old, he's a big, he's a big fucker, you know. He's oh, a big fucker. He's, he's a big, big boy. Fuck up. And I said, no, and he was, you know, I, he was fighting a bit as an amateur heavyweight. He weren't bad. And I was worried that he might still be a rich kid in there. You know, when I was at school, I never against a public school, which is a fee-paying school, a private school, a private school. I never made the 90th minute in any game. Because the moment someone spoke in a posh voice, I should just whack them. <laughs> I got sent off every single game against the private school. Because I had issues. I, was, I had to deal with these issues. So, bearing in box, mind... But you boxed Eddie, right? You yeah, took yeah. him into a ring and oh, you fought. 16th birthday, birthday, birthday present for Eddie was... I said, when you're 16, and he's a, you know, as I say, I was 48 or whatever. I was still sparring a little bit. Down the gym... Three rounds. I want to find out what type of kid you are. I want to find out if you're a rich kid that hasn't got any balls, or if you're a proper kid, which I hope you are. And I, you know, I thought enough of him. I had two world champions in the, in the gym that day. I said, right, everybody out of the ring. I need the ring for three rounds. Gum shields, head guards, small gloves, proper tear-up. Take something to do that with your son, you know. My wife was going apoplectic. She said, if you hurt him, she said, I will kill you. <laughs> well, I thought I was fairly apoplectic. Anyway, this is what... True story again. All these are true stories because this is the Men in Blazers evenings. You don't fuck about with Men in Blazers. Yeah, you don't. You don't. You're right. So, 
Bell goes for the first round. Do you remember when you were 16, how keen you were? You could fight anyone in the world, couldn't you? And you're 16. You've got nothing to lose. He's you remember these at, days? He's come over. He's come at me like a bull in a china shop. I have given him... Bosh, the best right hand I've ever thrown. Right on the point of the chin. This is like curtain punch. The little fucker didn't fall over. <laughs> I thought to myself, I could have a problem here. <laughs> he dropped... This is, this is embarrassing to tell you this. I mean, listen, I'm not a tough guy. I'm 66. We'll sort it out later, son. He dropped me twice in the second round. Really embarrassing. Everybody watching. Street cred out the window. <laughs> At the end of the second round, I said, thanks enough. That son, I know enough now. I'm happy. He said, Dad, you said you'd do three rounds. <laughs> I said, are you trying to kill me here? <laughs> we went home. As we got in the door, my wife said, if you've hurt him, I said, don't discuss it. I was 48. I haven't had a set of gloves on since. That's the effect. Oh, that's I when, that's when I first met Barry, I read his book, which many of you have, which is uh, Dr. Spock, Secrets to Child Wearing. <laughs> he writes under a nom de plume, chapter 20, many of you have never got there yet, but dealing with the late teenage boy. But it, okay, I think final... that, sorry, just to go back, the reason why I think my kids have been successful, my daughter is the head of my television uh, programme company, and she's ex-Sky TV. That she was the first brilliant producer. Brilliant producer. First woman producer of Premiership Football on Sky. She's a really tough girl, but she's a lovey. She's a lovey. And I'll tell you one story about my daughter which sums it all up. When she first joined me... He her... took her in the ring. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> first, the first event she ever did for me on TV production was outstanding. I will say that. Technically outstanding. But I looked at the post-production costs, and they were double what I normally pay. And I've been a, I'm a CPA, chartered accountant, we call them in England. So I'm always on top of the figures. So I, it's embarrassing, it's your daughter, it's her first job. So I pick up the phone, Kate, can you come down and see me? She comes down, I said, darling, love, love your work. Love it, darling, love your work, it's all lovey language. Um, but, you know, we're a private company, girl. You know, we've, we've got a... I'm on top of the figures. Your post-production costs are twice what I normally pay. And she looked at me, she said, Dad, you've got to understand two things. I said, what's that, darling? She said, firstly, art does not come cheaply. And secondly, this will never be discussed again. <laughs> and it has never been discussed again. <laughs> okay, life lesson number ten, our final life lesson. Here yeah. we go. When you need a hand, you're more likely to get a kick in the nuts. When you need no help, there will be a queue of people wanting to give you things. One of life's great mysteries. Uh, this, is, this is the truest thing, and this is probably the way to finish, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because yeah. we're there. Before we get thrown off. Okay, how many times when you were poor and struggling and looking at the audience, most of you still are? <laughs> When you were poor and struggling... By the way, Barry is speaking here, in case you're listening to this later on Grantland, he's speaking at Davos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How many times when you needed a helping hand did everyone turn away from you? Because most of the time, it's most of the time. Your real friends, of which there are very, very few, will stick with you. In my life... When I was young, 
it was it was a struggle and I enjoyed the struggle but I can't honestly say anything other than a handful of people gave me a helping hand now I've bang had it off right do you understand that English Fang Adiof. Translate it to American. Translate it means Barry yeah. is doing exceptionally Starsky well. Starsky and Hedge would say. And now, people don't stop giving me things. They never give me anything when I needed it. When Steve Davis first became famous, Snooker Blair, Gingy. We used to go out for we used to go out for dinner and we'd toss for the for the bill. If he won, the restaurant would say, Mr. Davis. It's a pleasure to have you here. If I won, they used to charge me. It was a, we- it was a weighted coin. So, no, we decided from that early doors, in future, Steve, you ask for the bill. If they charge you, I'll pay. It worked wonders. No one ever gave me anything. Last story. In 1991, I came as close to going bust as I can remember. We was in the middle of a recession. I owed millions of pounds. Everything I touched went pear-shaped. Sponsors went bust, TV companies didn't want to buy. I saw the new age of cable and satellite companies. I geared up for product and events because I knew they needed programming. I was probably a year or two too early. Before the oxygen channel was invented. Yes. In 1991, Christmas Eve, I'm about to go bust. And I get a train to Slough, which is a poxy area in West London. (laughs) And I'm going to see a man who runs Trust House 40, one of the big hotel groups. I need a sponsor for an event in January. This is Christmas Eve. I get off the train at four o'clock, Christmas Eve. It's snowing. I walk to this bloke's office. It's a Dickensian story. I walk in and he said, Barry, it's Christmas Eve. You must really need this. I said, to be honest with you, I do. He said, well, I've got no money. This is, I need a sponsor. I said, well, I hope you and your family have a lovely Christmas. At that stage, I'm actually thinking of going back into accountancy. That's how bad it was. I'd done all my bollocks. Bollocks in a bad way. (laughs) Not bollocks in a good way. As I leave, he goes, I haven't got any money. But I've got hotel rooms. I said, I need £300,000. He said, I'll give you £300,000 of hotel rooms around the world in exchange. By the time I got from his office at quarter to five back to Slough Station, I had sold those £300,000 of hotel rooms for £180,000 cash. And it saved my business. That is the first time anyone gave me a hand. Nowadays, final word, last time when we Orient played Arsenal in the fifth round of the FA Cup, I went in the dressing room before the game and said, this team's quite good, you know. (laughs) You're not very good, so I would strongly recommend you kick them very hard in the first half. (laughs) This was my tactical team talk. Blow me down, one of the greatest days of my life. In the 88th minute, Jonathan Toure sidestepped two Arsenal defenders and smacked the ball in the back of the net underneath the hapless Al Mooney. And we got a one-all draw, and I took them all to Vegas for a piss-up. But, and this is the last line, 
One of the life's great mysteries. Now, I'm super caked. East End term for having zillions, right? <laughs> I can afford to take 40 people to Vegas for a piss-up. The day after I announced I'm taking the team to Vegas, Robert Earl of Planet Hollywood phones me up. I never even met the geezer. And he says, what a lovely idea. Where are you staying? I said, I don't know, Robert. <laughs> he said, would you like to stay at Planet Hollywood? Is it free, says I. <laughs> Absolutely, says Robert, and we'll pay for all your food and all your drink. I shall wear a Planet Hollywood T-shirt, said I. <laughs> the day after that, Virgin Airways phones up. <laughs> My God, old chap, you're getting plenty of publicity off this Las Vegas trip, aren't you? Aye, aye, sir. <laughs> Who are you flying with? Haven't really given it a thought, actually. <laughs> would you wear a Virgin T-shirt? I would for 40 return tickets. I took 40 people to Las Vegas and had change out of $10,000. One of life's great mysteries. Ladies and gentlemen... On behalf of all GFOPs, on behalf of Rog and I, on behalf of the nation of America, on behalf of Abraham Lincoln. More America than America. We give to you this poster for this epic night. You were here, guys. This was like being at the first Sex Pistols concert, first Dino Beatles play. Which is also, by the way, at Barry Herm Pub. As at the Rochester Castle on Stoke Newington High Street. This is for you, Barry. This is from all of us. It's for the Leighton Orient Trophy Cabinet! <laughs> Barry, dispense these to your loving audience and give them a last word. Yeah. Shout them into your loving audience and give okay. us a last word for us to close on. It's an honour to be with you. For the first time ever, we've communed with you, which we do often because we adore our GFOPs. For the first time ever, we've talked a mild modicum of sense. I feel like being at, like this, I feel like we presented like as if Susie Orman and Serene Dark had a baby. <laughs> I'm starting a new religion, Hernism. It's so good. Let me just say one thing. Listen, I have a great time in my life. I smile every day. I'm excited to get up. I don't want to go to bed. I love every moment of my life. Men in blazers, funnily enough, which I thought was just two little anoreks. <laughs> I had no idea there's you guys out there. I have dined out on men in blazers in the UK. I have talked about it. No one knows what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> but I want to just say something. I have a lot of nice things going on in my life. Tonight was a really great night, and I appreciate you coming. Thank you so much. listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.